The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning. Thank you for that warm welcome. Please pray with me. Lord, open our hearts by the power of your spirit. Open our minds by the power of your spirit. Lower any resistance that there may be in us. You know the walls that we tend to put up. You know the things that we often would like to resist. We pray that you would make us people open to you, courageous in our openness to you, so that you may speak to us where we need to be spoken to. Be with us now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So my uh, topic today is uh, loving God and loving our country. And you can think of it by asking this kind of question, which is, how should we look at our country as Christians? And what I mean by that is, really, how do we resist two opposing temptations? The first temptation is one where we have the temptation for easy affirmation of our country. We say, hey, it's my country, we're great. The United States, best place that there has ever been in the world, ever, and the best place that there ever will be, and I wouldn't dare critique my country. The opposite temptation is easy condemnation of the country, where you say, our country? Not so great. Our country? maybe even a terrible country. There are people who are willing to say both of those kinds of things, but how do we resist easily going one way or the other? Because if you really love your country and you're thinking and tempted to easy affirmation, there's all kinds of things that make you think, I would never criticize it, it couldn't be, there couldn't be anything that goes wrong. Easy condemnation is the only thing you see are the horrors that have been perpetrated in your country. How does God help us to think truthfully about wherever we are and to live faithfully wherever we are? So there are a series of texts I'm going to read to us, not all at the same time. And each one of them, I think, helps us to have some guidance for how to love our country well by loving God well. The first point is this. We have to recover or discover what I like to call, not only me, but, but I call the first great commission. Psalm 8, verse 6 says this, you made him, as in human beings, ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. That text in Psalm 8, verse 6, is an echo of what we have in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and in verse 28, where when God creates humans, he says part of what it's going to mean to be human is to be the ones that are the rulers over his creation. Now, that seems to me like a great commission, having the responsibility to be those who take care of and rule well God's creation. It's his, not ours, but he's given us the responsibility, and we answer to him for how we have ruled over it. 
Part of the way that we rule over it is how the way we try to make life go well in God's world, whether that's through what we do culturally or what we're doing politically or what we do in all kinds of things, whether it's art, medicine, law, all of those types of things. When it comes to thinking about our country then, that means that it's always been the responsibility of Christians to be people looking how to manage God's world well. But there's an interesting temptation that Christians can have sometimes, which is to say, I'll let other people be involved in politics and cultural development while I'm going to just do spiritual things. And then so you leave political life and cultural life and cultural leadership to other people, and then you say, but I'll just get folks saved. When we do that, we are saying, God, I know that I think you wanted us to do something like this, but once this gospel stuff came, you couldn't have meant that we should keep doing this. I don't see anywhere where Jesus said, hey, you remember that stuff on page one? It's meaningless. Forget about it. I don't care about it. Just save souls and ignore the creation that belongs to God. Nowhere do you see that. But very often, Christians are leaving that responsibility to other people. And strangely, this thing happens. We leave that responsibility to other people, and then we complain because of their bad stewardship of the creation. I mean, if you're going to complain about anything in the country, and you don't vote, you don't write your congressman, you don't get involved in cultural formation, then the best thing to do is this. Because you've left it to somebody, you say, go right ahead, I'm going to take a little nap here. And then if you woke up after the nap and didn't like where you wound up, well, you told them to drive. We ought to be the ones involved in leading the world to being a place of greater flourishing. But very often, we're leaving that to other people. But God said, it's my world, you should be managing and stewarding my world well. It's hard for us to say we love God and love our country if we say, I'll let somebody else do it. I'm not going to do it. If we love God well, we'll say, Lord, thank you for this privilege. Help me to be wise in the way that I play my role in managing your world. And there's an opportunity for all of us there, and especially, by the way, if you're in a country like the United States, where you can actually contribute to the direction of the country, unlike a totalitarian country where you basically respond to whatever they say to do. What a stewardship opportunity for public life for all of us. I encourage you to ask God to help you to be wise and to know how to be a good manager of his world. So number one, recover or discover this first great commission, because managing the world is a great commission. Number two, pray for your country, whether it seems like home or not. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 7 says, pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Sometimes a country can seem like being in your own home, a great place to relax and be comfortable and flourish and be nurtured. 
Other times, it can feel like you are in a hostile territory. And of course, for some people, I mean, home is a hostile territory, right? Uh, Where being there means it's just an effort to survive. The Israelites have been deported, and God said he's the one that did it. He warned them. He gave them several warnings. He said, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And then he said, here come the Babylonians. The Babylonians? They're terrible people. They don't even like you, God. Here come the Babylonians. And so what happened? You get an exile is what you get. And God said, here you are in exile. But he said, while you were there, pray for the well-being of the place to which I've deported you. Now, some people, their experience in the United States is like, hey, it's great. Other people, they're like, you know, I'm feeling dissonance in the United States. It's not always great for me in the United States. No matter what you are experiencing, Pray for the well-being of the country. And here's an interesting thing that I think is a problem for Christians in the United States with doing this. We might say, I pray for my country all the time. Part of what I want to know about Christians in the United States is, um, what do you want Christians in other countries to do in terms of what they pray for? Because it seems to me, the way that a lot of our discourse is in the United States, what we want Christians in other countries to do is to pray for the well-being of the United States, because what's best for you is whatever is best for the United States. And in fact, I'm not even sure you should be loving your country. Love us and, you know, deal with where you are. But But do we want them to pray for their countries, to pray for the flourishing of their countries? Think about this. When was the last time you said, Lord, I want Russia to be a place that thrives. Lord, I want North Korea to be a place that thrives. Lord, I want Saudi Arabia to be a place that's actually a place of freedom and not a place that's a totalitarian police state. When was the last time you prayed that? And when you wanted Christians there to pray for the well-being of those places. We sometimes have a strange way where we have a kind of you know, narcissism about our own country, and we think everybody should be loving our country, thinking about the best interests of our country, but not thinking about the best interests of anywhere else. But there are Christians in places besides the United States. Where do you want them to pray when it comes to how they should love their country? Hopefully, you want them to pray for their country, just like we should be praying for ours. Because then, if those places thrive, and we thrive, What a better world we will have. Pray for the country, whether it seems great or whether it seems like you are in a horror story. God doesn't say, pray for the country where you are um, because they're great people. No, actually, they were terrible people. They, They were people who were very prideful and very violent. But God said, pray for the well-being of this place. When it thrives, you will thrive. So I ask you, pray for this country, but also pray for the Christians in other countries to do the same for their place. Because then we thrive, and they thrive, and God will be glorified. Number three, pray for leaders whether they do well in office or not. 
1 Timothy 2, 2 says, First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I once said in a sermon that people should pray for the president to do his job well. This did not go over particularly well with some people, because someone thought that I meant I was praying for re-election. This has nothing to do with praying for re-election. It's praying for the office to be stewarded well. Because for whoever's in office, as long as they are in office, if I'm just going to pray, because the Lord, take them out, whatever, then what are you praying for about what's happening for human beings in the meantime with the way that that office is stewarded? Because people's lives have challenges now, not just whatever happens in the next election. So whether you're going to vote for that person or not, and you may not, okay, you still ought to be praying for that office to be stewarded well for the common good of the most people as possible. That's what we should be doing. And by the way, this doesn't only mean pray for the president. It means pray for your senator, for your state representative for your governor, for all of those in these governmental leadership positions. Do you think the people that Paul was encouraging them to pray for are people that had the best interests of Christians in mind? They were in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire wasn't particularly interested in saying, now those Christians, we love them. They're just such good serving people. You know, I mean, they, they care for people we would never care for. Now, we need to make sure we take care of those people. I mean, they have an allegiance problem with Caesar, but, you know, we've just worked out a compromise with that. That's not exactly how it went, right? But Paul says, pray for those leaders. So my question for you is, do you pray for who's in office? And by the way, did you pray for who was in office in terms of the presidency before this one? And the one before that one? And the one before that one? It's strange how people have no problem praying for the president they like or the governor that they like, and they're strangely mute about the ones they don't like. But there is no exception clause in this text. So whoever it is, you should be praying for them to steward their job well. That's what you ought to be asking God to do. But what if they make me angry? Admit you're angry. Tell God, God, you know all things, but I'm going to say it anyway. I really don't like this office holder. And God says, okay. And? (laughs) Because you still need to be praying that in spite of themselves, that that office is stewarded well for the common good of all people. Because my question is, do you care about the common good of all people or do you just care about yourself? Because people with that level of responsibility, what they do impacts a lot of people, not just you. Now, do you want them, in spite of themselves, to do things where you say, well, Lord, now that is a surprise, something I never thought would happen. I'm glad it happened. I don't want them reelected, but I'm glad that happened. 
It's all right to have that kind of mind. You need to be praying for your leaders, whether they do well in office or not. Number four, love God more than anything else. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 puts it in a positive or a negative way. Do not have other gods besides me. I think that's pretty clear, right? God says, I'm the only God. Um, I have no interest in covenantal adultery, right? I'm the only God not interested in other people for you to kind of have a side thing with. A positive way of stating it is when Jesus is asked about what the greatest commandments in the law are. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-eight, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. If you're loving God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, not a whole lot of room for covenantal adultery. Not a whole lot of room for saying, well, there's the one true God and just a little bit of room for my side God. No room at all. No room at all. So the point is this. If God says, I am the one you are to love above everything else, no loyalty should ever be higher than your loyalty to God. God wants us for himself. He is not interested in sharing us with anyone. Right? When I got married and I got this ring on my finger, I was saying to God and all these people, it's her, my wife Shelly, and me, and nobody else. There, I didn't say when I said my vows, it's you and me, and there's a blank there for whoever I want to add later. Right? You ever been to a wedding where somebody says, it's you and me, and you know. When, uh, you know, I get a little distracted or a little upset, you know, I can, I can go somewhere else, right? You ever been to a wedding where that happened? <laughs> that, no, that would be one interesting wedding ceremony, right? <laughs> Somebody say, yeah, wow, wasn't that something? Well, what's this got to do with loving your country? Well, what it has to do with it is this. Celebrate, but do not worship your country. Celebrate, but do not worship. Be a patriot, but do not be a nationalist. What's the difference between a patriot and a nationalist? A patriot has proper love for their country. They care about it. They want it to flourish. They want it to be a great place. A nationalist said that my loyalty is number one to this country. Everything I do resolves to the interests of this country above everything else. If you worship the one true God and your country is doing things that are contrary to your worship of that one true God, who are you going to choose? Now, you need to be choosing the one who made this world, this world, by the way, which existed before this country came into existence, and this world that when God talks about the realized eschaton, this country is not mentioned. Now, if that's the case, then I think we should be worshiping him because he's going to last. You know, I mean, look, I will, I, I'm saying right here for the very much, there's reasons why people like to come to the United States. There's reasons why it does great things. None of that means be a nationalist. 
It means it's a great place. It's not a perfect place. And it's definitely not God. So if you're going to love God above everything, you're actually able to love your country well. Because you can tell your country the truth. And you can say, I like when we do things that are influenced by loving God. But you better believe that if God says there are ways that people are to operate in his world and those things aren't happening in certain ways, that I'm going to say, I think God's got a problem with some things in our country. Now, sometimes people don't have a problem saying that. What's interesting is that people don't say that the same things are the things that are going wrong. You know what I suggest you do if you've had one of those conversations where you think one issue is a justice issue and, you think an, and somebody else thinks a different issue is a justice issue? Go bowling together. <laughs> and when you're going bowling together and you're having fun, just kind of casually say, you know, I noticed that you were saying that this was a justice issue, right? But while you're bowling and just being human together, Right, and discovering that actually you might really like each other and you like bowling together and, and that this might be the beginning of like a thing with, with, with you and this friend, uh, then that's the environment in which to say, help me understand why that is a justice issue for you and why you think that's the thing we need to talk about if we love God and there's a problem with this country. And then find out what the exact same thing with the other person. It's a strange thing called being human together. It's a strange thing recognizing that people often have good reasons for the things that concern them. If we don't inquire, sometimes we'll never know. We'll never know. Love God, do not be a nationalist, but be a better and proper patriot. Number five, love your neighbors without an asterisk. Matthew 22, verse 39. Love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus is talking about love God above all, love your neighbor as yourself, and that all the law and the prophets are hanging on these, what he means is everything that God says when he asks us to do something is either about making him number one or loving our neighbor as ourselves. You know, uh, we have some problems in this country related to um, this thing called race. And sometimes um, people don't do well talking about that. They do well asserting about it is what they do. And here's the problem, here's the problem. Um, I want all of you to, to imagine this situation. Imagine that you had a problem, which all of you do, we all do, right? Uh, and imagine that you went to somebody to talk about the problem that you have. And, it's a, and you think it's a really big problem. And you are looking for compassion. You are looking for understanding. You, you are looking for ways of a path forward, for some transformation and healing around this thing. And you, and you, and you pour this out to this friend. And your friend says, um, that's not really a problem. And then they said, I'll tell you when you really have a problem. So my question is, um, 
How many of you like it when somebody tells you about your own experience? When somebody tells you exactly what you feel? How many of you like that? How many of you like people intentionally misunderstanding you? Have you ever loved it when somebody says, I'll tell you about you, and they don't let you speak about you? This is what happens often on campuses like this one and the one I come from when it, talk, when it comes to talking about race. We have this thing at Wheaton College called the forum wall, right? And I've said this before, I'll say it again. So sometimes, you know, my sanctification gets tempted and has a problem with the forum wall. And, and, I, and I, I think, and I get tempted to arson sometimes with our forum wall. I mean, I've never, yeah, I'm not, never do it. I mean, it's all kinds of problems. But... But once on the forum wall, somebody wrote a letter complaining about somebody bringing up questions of race. And the person basically said that the group that was talking about these problems talked about problems that don't really exist. And I thought to myself, that's a whole lot of omniscience. (laughs) Because somehow you know every single person's experience at Wheaton College. And you can say whether people have had a problem or not. That's called a presumption of power. A presumption of defining reality for other people. It's not loving your neighbor as yourself. When it comes to the lingering challenges of race that we have in this world, and we have them, from the individual level to the corporate level. We can't address them if we're well-practiced in telling other people that problems don't exist, and we never inquire about problems that that exist. When you want someone to care for you and attend to you, I think you hope they will actually listen to you, and understand you. And even if you don't quite get what they are saying, you'll keep asking questions rather than responding with assertions. That's loving your neighbor. And by the way, it's really not just about matters of race. It's really about all kinds of issues. You know, one of the things that we don't do well in evangelical settings, we don't handle sexuality well. I wonder sometimes, people who have grown up in evangelical settings, they struggle with same-sex attraction or transgender things, etc., and they, they, they go to somebody to help them with it, and basically they wind up with experiences of pastoral incompetence, or pastoral malfunctions, and they feel like the only thing they can do is wait for their exit from life, some of them. That's real. When people live that way, don't be surprised when you see them on Facebook with a partner. Because our community has not understood them. Please understand. Understanding them doesn't mean don't hold the traditional position. 
It means know how to hold traditional position, traditional position and seek the flourishing of those that you will invite to your weddings and they will know that you are saying to them, you will never have this. And you're wondering what it means to be compassionate to them and what it means to seek their flourishing when they deal with intense loneliness, greater experiences of depression, greater temptations to suicide, and often feel like they are alone with everybody there in Christian, situ- Christian communities. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, well, in the church and in this country, Christians should be the people that say, we are the ones who really mean it when we say, we want the flourishing of everyone. And we are seeking ways to create a world, to create a country where people feel like they can survive and breathe and flourish. But if there are some people that feel like they can't because they're either ignored or their experience is denied or rejected when they, come to, when they try to have, get some compassion, then we've put an asterisk besides loving, love of neighbor. Have you ever experienced that asterisk? Have you ever been one who's been an agent of love with that asterisk? It's a temptation for all of us. It's a challenge for all of us because these aren't simple, easy things. They are complex. They are messy. They are challenging. But I want to tell you something before I close here. It's really important. If we're going to love God and love our country well, and we're the people who really love God above everything else and love neighbor as we should without an asterisk and exercise this first great commission as we should, if we're those people in this moment with so much craziness in the world, so much confusion, so much distress, so much depression. What a witness to the world. People say, you know the thing about those people, those Bible-believing Christians? Man, they love God, and man, they love people. Man, they are seeking the good of everybody else. In politics, in culture, everywhere I go, when they show up, they seek the good of everyone. Because they say, we really are known by our love. Our love for God and our love for every image bearer in his creation. If that was our reputation, you think there would be a crisis with the word evangelical right now? If that was our reputation? Oh, there would not. Instead, people would go, you know those evangelicals, I'm not sure I get those people. But I'll tell you this, they love their God, they love people, and we need more of them around. Because when they're around, things get better. Friends, I am telling you, as God is my witness this morning, that if you are the agents of loving God and loving country that way, you will be at the leading edge of a public witness that gives a greater and better reputation to Christ and his name, and God will be glorified. I pray that you will be those people leading the way that you will have the courage because it's not easy and that you will have the wisdom because it's not easy to figure out but that you will love God and in loving him well love your country better than you could imagine let us pray
Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the privilege of stewarding your world. Thank you for your word that tells us to love you above all and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Help us, Lord, because we need it. If we're left to our own devices, we'll mess it up. But with you helping us, we can be empowered to be a witness who gives you glory at every level, within, our, within ourselves, within our interpersonal relationships, and with the ways that we operate when it comes to matters in our country. May it be so with us, Lord. Praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed.